Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Notable. Hello. Welcome to Notable with me, Elizabeth Holker. And me, Stu McConey. And we're round the table at our producer Jeff's incredible house in Macclesfield. It's lovely. We're round the kitchen table, so you might hear passing cars, car, police cars, tramp steamer. Yeah. <laughs> Macclesfield being on the um, maritime highway. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and we're going to tell you some more about two interesting, curious tales from the world of music we and are. the history and culture that surrounds music as well. Absolutely. So, shall we get started? Why don't you? What are you going to okay, tell me? Okay, so the first story, uh, the one that I'm going to tell you about, Stuart, is this rumour that's been kicking around since 1969 that Paul McCartney is, in fact, dead. Paul is dead. The Paul is dead rumour. Yeah. Uh, so I first came across this when I was a student at Leeds University and I did a history of art module. We could kind of pick and choose from other departments to make up our credits. And we were studying kind of iconography, mostly about what different fruits and animals meant in Franz Hall's paintings. Right. But What I do think... they mean? And that's a separate podcast, I can't, Yeah. Right. I know a dog is obviously the sign of... Uh, fidelity and oh okay um, I didn't know that right. yeah was, I'll bring some more next week great but it was a wide ranging <laughs> course in terms it of was. this you did yeah we looked at the front of Abbey Road okay. the cover of Abbey Road the Beatles album yeah the Beatles album and our professor Professor Richard Howells said this is a funeral procession you know how they're all kind of crossing over on the on the zebra crossing very famous Absolutely. Uh, cover John is leading the way. He's dressed in white. He's a priest. Ringo is next. He's dressed all in black. So he's the funeral director. Yes. Paul is third and he's barefoot, which is apparently a sign of being dead. And he's smoking as well. He's got a cigarette in the the wrong wrong hand. hand. Because he's famously left-handed and cigarettes in his right hand, which will explain the significance of that in a minute, that it's not the real Paul. Absolutely. Yeah. And behind is George, who is the gravedigger. In denim. Denim, Which I've never quite exactly. got. I didn't really understand that denim was great to work, but I suppose it means like work gear, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. And so Richard Howells looks at us all and he said, so as you can see from this cover, Paul is dead. And we were like, no, he's not. No, he's and not. he said, how do you know? And we were like, because he's still alive. Right. We've met him, Stuart. Okay. We or have de- we? Let's de- well, or have we? Let's declare an interest here. We've met Paul McCartney. Yeah. And we had a really nice time with we him. Did. And he was lovely. We hung he out in his dressing peanut. room. He gave us a chocolate peanut. We've hung out in his dressing room. He was very sweet to us. We've got pictures of us with him. Yeah. But according to the Paul is Dead rumour, which still some people believe... They do. That is not Paul McCartney. No. That's a guy called Billy Shears. Yeah, or William Campbell. Or William Shears Campbell. Yeah, Campbell, exactly. uh, All kinds of variations. Who was recruited by the Beatles. Before we go into all the iconography and clues, should we say what the the story is? is, Yeah. Yeah. So the rumour started in 1969. Uh, The the conspiracy is basically that Paul died in 1966. He got in his car on the 9th of November that year after storming out of sessions for Sergeant Pepper, drove off, crashed and died. 
in a huff. That's right. Uh, what the Beatles did then was cover the whole thing up, replaced him with one of their mates who happened to also look like Paul and went on to write Blackbird and all those other famous form wings. That's a very good point, yeah. yeah. That's a very good point. <laughs> so They're maybe this guy mates. should have been uh, the yeah. original Paul Unless anyway. They wrote them in. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. And his name was William Shears, as you say, William Shears Campbell or William Shepherd, sometimes Billy Shears as well, uh, who's mentioned on Sergeant Pepper. Pepper. So there were a few kind of incidents that I'm not even going to say gave any legitimacy to this, but that made people think that there'd there'd been a crash of some sort. There were two crashes kind of loosely connected to Paul. He did actually crash his moped in December 1965. Wow, this is good research. He had a chipped tooth. So in the video for Paperback Writers, he has a chipped tooth and he has a scar on his lip, which he sort of covered with a moustache. Then in 1967... Paul's Mini Cooper was involved in an accident. Right. Um, it was being driven by a Moroccan student called Mohammed Hajij. Okay. Uh, f- from a party <laughs> involving uh, Richards, Jagger. Um, they Those were all guys. on their way to, yeah, we were following behind as well in our own Mini Cooper, <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, they were off to Richard's country house and this student crashed Paul's mini. It was a write-off. The student ended up in hospital. Uh, right. Paul wasn't present. Paul wasn't present. But suddenly all these rumours started flying around that Paul had died. They start on American campuses, don't they, I think? They do, I think college campuses. College campuses. Yeah. People start, jocks on college campuses yeah. start to say, hey, that's not Paul McCartney, man, you know. Yeah, so the way it gathered speed... In 1969, November that year, a radio presenter called Russ Gibb, it's a very kind of American jock yeah. DJ Hi. name that, isn't it? I'm Russ Gibb. Yeah. Um, he got a call on his show, which was on a station. It was WKNRFM in Michigan. The caller was called Tom, mysteriously. Right. I mean, it's not that much of a weird, mysterious name, but there was no surname. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> and he claimed... That McCartney was dead. I was thinking this, like, imagine if someone called your show on Six yeah, Music and yeah. said, my name's Tom, and I don't know, I don't want to make, make, say any names of, you know, pop stars and say they're dead. But, you know, yeah. everyone would think that was really strange. It'd be unlikely they'd even get past the producer and on air, isn't That's it? That's right. You know. The bits I've looked into about this thing, that there was just some kind of weird climate in America at the time. It was Vietnam. Yeah. It was, it was, a, it was an era of... Everybody had this thing about the man and the establishment yeah. and they're not telling us things, man, and conspiracies. And it just fed this kind of thing. weird vibe on American campuses that, like, that's not Paul McCartney, man. You know, yeah. except the Beatles are the man in this case. Was because it they, the drugs that people were taking? I don't know, but this... Yeah, cold, but, the whole kind of Cold War but atmosphere. But it is strange that it got People disappearing into mountains, like it, a, an episode of Thunderbirds It did, it did get credence, though, didn't it, really quickly? And, like... It did. It became a phenomenon. But it's incredible how that happened. So, so the, the guy, Tom, the famous Tom... His evidence for this was that if you play the Beatles song Revolution 9 backwards, then it's set, you know how it says number nine, number Number nine? nine. Um, Well, apparently, backwards, if you play that backwards, um, it's the words, turn me on, dead man. That's right, that's the rumour. That's the rumour. There's something else as well. That was the only evidence that you had. There's another clue, isn't there, that on Sergeant Pepper, the end of Sergeant Pepper, there's that little bit at the end of Sergeant Pepper. Were, oh yeah, he says. Lennon says, "I buried Paul." Paul, yeah. There's a whole load of other stuff that yeah. came after this, but the oh, rumor okay. just, started just started from just with that, that one guy. I get you, right? So uh, after that, there was a man called Fred Labor. That also feels like quite in a '60s American name, yeah. song. like the, the sort of person who would start a conspiracy. Yeah. He was listening. He was a student journalist as well, and he thought this would be fun to write up. Again, it's all quite dark. This isn't it. Why would you do this? I know. Uh, he wrote up the story in his student newspaper, and he said. 
basically um, the Beatles had replaced Paul. He was the person who came up with the William Campbell idea. Billy Shears. Billy Shears. And he was going to say they replaced him with a friend called Glenn Campbell, but he thought that was too obvious. He's since since admitted this. He's admitted all this, has he? Right. So he thought, I'll change it to William. It's a bit less obvious. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. That's how that started. Um, And then... From that piece that he wrote, this story just basically spread around the world. At the Apple kind of press team had to keep had to, asking yeah. Paul Derek for Taylor, statements. Derek Taylor had to keep denying it, didn't he? And Ringo famously said, or that famous, but he said it. He said, this is insane. He said, but there's nothing we can do about it, really, because you can't prove. I mean, we know this is Paul McCartney and he is alive and well, but we yeah. can't prove otherwise because they'll just keep because you know the thing about conspiracy theories is that you, what can what will ever convince people and they just say no that's not him that's not Paul McCartney it's like I once read somewhere an interesting thing about conspiracy theories people who believe conspiracy theories believe all, all of, of them, them. Yeah. they never believe just one <laughs> I've yet to meet someone who goes I've never yet to meet someone who says yeah you know Jim Morris but Paul McCartney's dead you know and Jim Morrison he's still alive the Illuminati the Illuminati and then you go what about the moon landings and then, and then they go oh yeah we landed on the moon obviously they they believe all of yeah, them it's yeah, a mindset yeah. isn't it yeah. you know what I mean it's the way your brain's wired isn't it but, you, but it only takes a second to think through the logic of it and think why well, where would the, is be- the body well and why would what? the Beatles bother yeah some people say Jim Morrison is alive mm. well then why isn't he in Tesco's you know, what, what has he got to gain from pretending to be dead? So as someone who was born in the 80s, the more I was sort of reading into this whole mm. conspiracy, I was just thinking, is this a... It feels very 60s. You know, that this person would appear on that radio show and say this and it would get picked up and well, be allowed to flourish in the way that it was and given the airtime. Yeah, I would have to say I'm not a, an expert because I was in, like, nappies for yeah, a lot of it. But right. I think, yeah, like I said, the, there was a mood abroad about us and the man, the counterculture and the man, and the man lied to you. The man wanted you to believe certain stuff, and it was like, hey, that's not what's true. You shouldn't believe everything the man tells you. And that just extended. And I think also people believed rock culture is still very young. And this doesn't quite apply to the Paul scenario because it's saying Paul is dead. But people couldn't quite believe, and you get this with Lennon and you get this with Jim Morrison, that these immortal rock gods that could do something as prosaic and ordinary as die. You know, so it's no, the man's tried to silence them in some way. And that just became, I think, the ethos of the times that somehow we didn't know the truth and that was a worldwide conspiracy of the establishment and the military and the... There was a lot of international mistrust as well, wasn't there? Yeah, I think it was the height of the Cold War. So some of that that mistrust would have been completely legitimate, but not Paul McCartney being dead. Yeah, okay. Because I think the idea was that the Beatles had covered, correct me if I'm wrong, had covered up the death and the accident and then stricken with guilt at what they'd done, had left, left clues, clues yeah. everywhere, which is a weird thing to do. Absolutely. But, yeah. but following this, good old Russ Gibb. Um, Hi, I'm Russ Gibb. He went back and he did an hour-long special called The Beatle Plot, spoke to all kinds of people, spoke to someone who claimed to be Paul, who wasn't even Paul, yeah. other people who claimed like they knew that he died for sure, um, spoke to Derek Taylor, as you say, and did this whole kind of hour-long special. So he giving it credence in some, you know, just just kind of legitimising this story or giving it airtime, which, you know, is enough to make anyone think there might yeah. be something to it. The real Paul, well, we think... Yeah, he's the real, the, no, he's the real Paul. <laughs> Let's not go down that. He is the real Paul, yeah. He was in... Uh, and this is partly why, pe- why he kind of added uh, fuel to the fire, because he was in semi-seclusion in his Scottish farm, which apparently he let go to slight kind of rack and ruin. Yeah. And people thought, well, it must be scruffy, because he's dead, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he just had his daughter, Mary, with, uh, with he and Linda. With Linda yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So he wasn't really around and he'd been very much like in the media all the time before then. So people did also think he'd disappeared. Yes. Lennon was promoting the wedding album at the time. So much to his annoyance, he kept being asked about it. Yes. Um, And just you can find online interviews with him and he's just so bemused by this story and also really annoyed that people just keep asking him on his promotional trail about it. Yeah. So uh, Apple had to ask Paul for a statement while he was up in his Scottish farm. Um, He gave them a very famous one. It was words by Mark Twain. Rumours of my death have been greatly exaggerated. And he also said, if I was dead, I'm sure I'd be the last to know about it. Yeah. There's a couple more clues, perhaps we should mention as well. People are clue hunters. Like there's the car parked on the Abbey Road sleeve that says 28 if, which people have said... That would be he'd have been twenty eight if he'd lived. The only trouble is he wouldn't. He'd have been twenty seven. Yeah. The maths don't work. But then people said, Oh no, but in the Hindu religion, babies are born at the age of one. Yes. So, so they were really keen to, extra, to, yeah. to find some logical explanation for all this. Yeah. Um also people thought that walrus is Greek for corpse. Did they? Yeah. As in I thought the walrus was porn. Yeah, actually it's Scandinavian. <laughs> for corpse oh right <laughs> apparently goo goo gajoob goo goo gajoob is what Humpty Dumpty says in Finnegan's Wake before he has his fatal fall but again not true okay but that's one but that that's was one, another yeah. thing that people said um, and I Am the Walrus obviously ends with the BBC broadcast of the fatal scene from King Lear, which John is true oh. but John just apparently liked it and that's why they used it yeah yeah He's had such currency, though, and such credence. I mean, the the, the Ruttles reference it. You know, the, yeah. in the, on the Ruttles movie, they reference it because Stig, the quiet one in the Ruttles, who's actually based on George Harrison, so it doesn't quite work, but they, they, they'd start the Stig is dead rumour. And um, because one of the things is that um, if you play some one of the tracks backwards, it says, uh, I buried Stig. But then they say, no, it actually, it's Iberato Stigati, which is bad Spanish for, have you a water buffalo? So they played it. And even Paul McCartney himself has referenced the thing, because yeah, he, yeah. he made a live album in 2010, I think, called Paul is Live. So I think even he's referenced it, which shows well, he's a good sport, if nothing else. When he appeared on um, the front of Life magazine with his wife and daughters, yeah. it was the whole thing was, you know, here's Paul McCartney, he's still alive, he's still basically. Alive. Yeah, they felt was... like they had to do that. Yeah. So it is incredible. But like like I was saying before, if he died in 1965, I mean, that's pretty early on, isn't it? We've had yeah. a lot of whoever this William Campbell guy is yeah. since then. Since then. He wouldn't have got married, wouldn't have formed wings. The band the Beatles could have been. Yeah, Tom exactly. Partridge. Never wrote Hey Jude. Yeah. Never got fined for cannabis possession. No. I do distinctly remember, because in the late 1960s, I was at primary school, and I distinctly remember Anne Ruddy, even remember her name, hi Anne, if you're listening, Anne Ruddy coming to me one place, I'm saying, Pom McCartney's dead. And I said, no, he's not. She said, yeah, he is, he's died, he's died, so, you know, gone. And now I realise Did she listen to she, Russ Gibb? She, I don't think she was an avid listener. <laughs> I guess older brothers and sisters, maybe reading the NME, you know, right, picked okay. up the story and told her. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, but, it had, but it had even reached a council estate in Wigan by, by wow. 1969. Yeah, well, yeah. There, were, there were interviews on Radio 4 about it. I think Derek Taylor had to go on wow. uh, the midday programme on Radio 4 and, like, morning TV... Um, so it was in the media here for sure, mainstream media. Yeah, but to conclusively out there. end this rumour now, we have had a chocolate peanut, peanut. with him yep. in his dressing room in Manchester. Yep. Paul McCartney is alive and well. He's alive and well, yeah. Hey, here's the thing. 
What about we have a moment here for a notable exception? Great idea. Which is a little fact, a one-off, a unique event that's not big enough, uh, not detailed enough and storied enough to go into a lot of time and trouble over, but it's just an interesting fact. I've got one for you. Come on. Do you know what the only instrumental is the Beatles released? No, come on. It's called Flying from the Magical Mystery Tour soundtrack. It's got some gliders flying. And out of the whole Beatles catalogue, that is their only instrumental. So that's a good Great pub fact. quiz type fact. Yeah. Yeah. Notable exception. Also, if you, that's you listeners, have got a notable exception. Get in touch at Notable Pod on Twitter. Absolutely. Any little facts you want to share with us at Notable Pod. <laughs> hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Elizabeth, let's talk dates. Okay. There are some significant, momentous, pivotal dates in history. 1066, Battle of Hastings, the Norman Mm. Conquest. 1805, Trafalgar, 1815, Waterloo, Waterloo. 1605, Gunpowder Plot, etc., 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 But there are some significant musical years, would you think? Do you think 76, punk. punk. Yeah, 67, the Summer of Love. Yeah. Second Summer of Love. Second Summer of Love. 87, the Second Summer of Love. Yeah. yeah. If you're a jazz fan, you will probably think the most significant year in the history of jazz is 1959. It was this extraordinary year when... Jazz changed, not in one direction, but in several different directions, thanks to several different albums by different people, but all within a short space of time, crunched into this one year, which has now made it the year that jazz changed, the most important year in the history of jazz. And it's just an interesting story, I think. Why it should be, there weren't any particularly any great socioeconomic reasons about 1959. You know, the 50s were just, they were a time of kind of relative peace and prosperity in America. Um, There were the stirrings of civil rights and things like that. But there's any particularly significant reason, unlike, say, 76 and punk rock, where you've got Britain in the grip of an economic crisis, where you've got mass unemployment and all this adds to this vibe of, you know, something's... Got anarchy. to change and yeah. anarchistic. I don't think there's any particular reason why 59 should have had this kind of significance. But there are, depending on how many you want said. Some people think that there are six big albums in that year. But it, it, for the sake of speed and just were they leaders, there are definitely four. Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Yeah. The biggest selling jazz album ever, if you don't count Keith Jarrett's 
Cologne concerts on ECM, which is an improvised piano album, which I think has sold almost as many, but it's whether you class that as jazz or not. Okay. Certainly the straight ahead jazz, the biggest selling of the what you might call a straight ahead jazz album is Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Before that, the dominant kind of music in jazz has been this thing called bebop. Yep. which is kind of almost like the prog mm. of the jazz world. It's fast, it's very technically demanding and virtuosic, lots of chords. You can hear the chords changing all the time, usually played by the piano, behind these soloists. The greatest exponent, Charlie, Charlie Parker. Parker. Bird. Yeah. And Miles Davis was in his band. Davis was in his band. Davis. Yeah. I was going to say, was Charlie Parker a big part of this? Because he was this point of confluence, wasn't he, for jazz? And he, he was. He um, was influenced by all different kinds of music. He was a big fan of Edgar Varese. I know he followed yeah. him around Greenwich Village asking him for lessons and or was too afraid, actually, to ask him for lessons and then finally plucked up the courage and did. But, you know, that influence, I suppose, changed the sound of jazz, didn't it? Well, and he, the rhythm of jazz. Absolutely. And just... Parker's the main guy before 59. In a way, it's like he's dominant. In rather the same way, I guess you could say, it's a twitch, stretching analogy a bit, but when the punks come along and they say, you know, the Beatles and the Dylans and the Stones have had their day, in a way, what happened in 59 is a reaction against Parker because okay. he's been the head, he and Bebop have been the dominant music of jazz since the late 1940s. Like you said, Miles Davis played in Charlie Parker's band, mm. did all this super. In fact, there's a track called Donna Lee, which people think is the classic Bebop track that Miles Davis claims he wrote for Charlie Parker. Okay. And it's all this, and it's incredibly fast and frenetic uh, coming out of New York. Charlie Parker, though, he died, of course, in 1955. Age only 35, yeah. but he'd packed a lot into those 35 years, he? Hadn't certainly he? had. And also, because he's dead now as well, so there is a, a kind of vacuum, a gap waiting to be filled. Words the new direction in jazz now that the main guy of bebop has gone. Yeah, okay. People certainly start to think, particularly Miles Davis, it's run its course by 1959. Where are we going to go next with this music? And what he does now, you're a musician. Hmm. so you'll know this what he does he says instead of having these fast chord changes he goes back he studies a few technical manuals on modes yeah now you correct me if I'm wrong but modes are essentially scales, scales yeah. aren't they yeah 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 they're more simple scales they're very a lot of early music was modal that's right but Dorian if, but, mode Aeolian mode and I think if you start on C and go da 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 that's one mode that's I think is that Dorian I think it is but if you start on E the same sequence of notes that becomes Phrygian, I think, and yeah. there's Mixolydian. So there's these seven different modes. And what uh, Miles Davis says is, let's stop having this frenetic chord-based music and let's play music based upon... Because each of the modes has a characteristic feel, enigmatic, sad, yeah. bright. And he starts to make music, or he starts to want to make music based on these modes. And what comes out of that is this record kind of blue. Let's set the template, really, for things coming. It's suddenly you've got a new kind of jazz. It's cool. It's more emotional. It's more emotional? Yeah, it's it has this air of sophistication and mystery helped by, of course, his playing, because he's got this extraordinary tone, hasn't he, Miles Davis? He a haunting yeah. kind of beautiful yeah. tone. In that band as well is John Coltrane, which is extraordinary. He has a big album that year. Well, as within well. a month, he has Giant Steps, yeah. uh, which is a similar, which is a similarly huge record. It's now set the template for a lot of jazz to come. But he's in that band, the Miles Davis band that makes Kind of Blue, and uh, yeah, biggest selling jazz album ever. It still sells a couple of thousand copies a week. Amazing, kind of blue. really. Um, his idea, I guess, was to declutter jazz, and that's yeah. what he did. Well, modal music has a simplicity to it, doesn't it? As it well. does. It's kind of at the opposite end. A bit more spacious. And... Well, maybe not at the opposite end, but there's another dude knocking about, and interestingly, a guy called Dave Brubeck, who in 1959 makes an album called Time Out, which has got a really interesting genesis. The Brubeck Quartet are white, 
uh, or initially were white until they got uh, an Afro-American, African-American bass player, Eugene. But this made them always, they were always more acceptable to the middle American audience. Because he was quite a controversial figure, wasn't he? He was. And it but was troubling, wasn't they it? They felt it was problematic that a white guy was being successful yeah. with, a, with a black music. Yeah. But he's interesting because he's, he's, he's more like a nerdy, professorial type Brubeck. He looks that way and his band, but he absolutely, he used to play Southern, once, once they got a black bass player, he, some Southern universities would say, you can't come on stage with that guy. Yeah, and he yeah. would go, well, we are, or we aren't going on. Yeah. Nothing, no one, I think... Uh, has been further from a racist than, than Dave Brubeck himself. But he, people did think that, especially this record, Time Out, sold black music, sort of sanitised it, and sold it to middle-class white America. What it came out of, though, is really interesting. Because Brubeck was a popular jazz artist, the government, the president, came to him and said, we want you to be a cold warrior. We want you to take jazz culture to the borders of the Soviet Union. Oh. So he toured, the Brubeck Quartet toured Iran, Pakistan... Turkey, Poland, all those kind of buffer countries on the edge of the Soviet Union, playing to packed houses. Mr. Cooley was known as in Poland, playing to packed houses. But what he heard out there is what we would now get called world music. So when he came to make Time Out, which is a succession of experiments in time signatures, you know, he uses this in this music. The most famous piece, of course, is Take Five, yep. written in 5 4 time. With at the centre of it, Joe Morello, the drummer. It's a, it's the, it's the biggest selling jazz forty five of all time. It crossed over into the pop charts. Wow! Which one you think it's in five four time? And in the middle of it, there's a drum solo. Yeah. That was apparently Joe Morello was sitting backstage going, beating out this five four riff, and, and he said, "We'll make we'll make a tune out of that." Okay. But there's also a famous tune in it called Blue Rondo a la Turk, which you know, which is based on a Turkish folk song that they heard on this tour. So bits of world music are starting to creep in as well. Critics of Time Out, even though it's a brilliant record, critics of it say the, the Starbucksification of jazz starts here, you know what I mean? Okay. And I heard one critic who said it's a bit like Shakespeare. He's great, but it's just some of the people who like him aren't, which I think is a bit snobby. It's just because it was popular. And he was think? enormously popular, yeah. Because yeah. like you say, he was very studious about the music, wasn't he? Yeah. And um, wanted to play it right and, yeah. you know, get the sound right. And, yeah. And was inventive, actually, in what he was doing. Absolutely. But that's much more of an experiment with time signatures. Miles is experimenting with melody. That's experimenting with um, with time signatures. A million miles away from Brubeck is a guy called Charles Mingus. Charlie Mingus. Mm. This great burr of a man. Angry. There's a great story about him pulling all the strings out of a piano at once, isn't there? On That's stage. Right. He had an argument with yeah. his pianist and he pulled the strings just, of yeah. the piano out of the piano. Which <laughs> must take something. That's like turning up a telephone director. Yeah. That's quite a feat. There's some good footage of him shooting a shotgun, firing, firing, firing when he a shotgun. He fires the shotgun through yeah. the plaster in his hand. Yeah, yeah. He was just this big, irascible <laughs> burr of a man. Brilliant bass player, brilliant musician, but also. I guess the angry young man of jazz he was thought of, you know, a bit like we had the angry young men here in the 50s, sort of literary angry young men. He was the angry young man of jazz. And what he does with his great album of 59, because he makes one as well, it's called Mingus R. Um, yeah. he reconnects jazz with a kind of ancestry, really, of, of blackness, of the Afro-American heritage, of slavery. There's Wednesday night prayer meeting, better get it in your soul. This is much more, this is completely the opposite of, of Brubeck and Miles. This is, it's angry, it's full of passion. And the most famous track on it is called Fables of, politically the most famous track, it's called Fables of Phobos, who's this guy, Orville Phobos, who had been, or Phobos if you prefer, who was the governor of Arkansas, of Little Rock, Arkansas, who fought to stop integration there. And in the end, uh, Eisenhower had to send in the troops 
to get these these black kids into school because Forbes wouldn't let them go. And there's these terrible scenes you can watch on YouTube, horrible things. And Mingus made a track about it. Originally with lyrics saying this guy's ridiculous, preaching hate and all this, which Columbia Records said you can't put those on the album. Really? But it's because still, of the time. It, it was yeah, just too yeah. controversial. But it still works. It still works as a piece of music because it's almost comedic. It kind of makes him look like a figure of fun. Do you know the bit in Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony, the invasion theme? The I Nats, do. The invasion theme, yeah. It's, it's like about the banality of evil, isn't it? Because it's yeah. such a stupid tune. The da, 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 da. Yeah. It's and it's supposed to evoke. And, it's mocking yeah. them, but it's supposed to evoke the kind of both banality and stupidity and, and evil of these people. Yeah. It's a bit like that because it's a comic tune, Fables of Phobos. But it's, I think it's kind of saying, what kind of dude is this? So, but so, so that is another way jazz is going. Interestingly, I first sort of came across Charlie Mingus through Joni Mitchell. Really? Um, when oh, I was a teenager. Her, her album Mingus. Yeah, yeah. She did, yeah, she she did she an did. album in tribute to him, didn't she? Did. she? And but maybe him. the craziest of them all, a guy called Arnett Coleman, who's a little guy from L.A., makes a record in this year, 59, called The Shape of Jazz to Come. And it's crazy to think they all came out at the same time. I, I think Because you imagine that that Ornette Coleman album was later, I think. Oh, I but, think so, you're right. Yeah. yeah. But they're not but talk- it's all but they the don't know year. each other. They're not yeah. talking to each other. They're not cross-fertilising. Brubeck's really having his thinking at the same time as Mingus is having his thinking and Davis is all separately. All about different bits of what jazz is. Yeah. But they're all having these... There's just something in the air, obviously. Coleman, there's a great story by Charlie Hayden, who's the bass player in his band, who's a white guy. So I'm saying, going down to Jerry Mulligan's club in LA and seeing this little guy come and pull out a white plastic saxophone yep. and play this incredible music that he'd never He said never he'd never heard. seen a plastic saxophone no, before. No, ne- or heard anything like this before in yeah. his life. And basically, Jerry Mulligan stopped him because it was it's the beginning of what we call free jazz now. It's this wild, anarchic sound. Yep. And Mulligan said, stop, man, that's not music. And he left. Hayden chased him, couldn't get him, tracked him down to his apartment in LA and said, I've never heard playing like that in my life before. Uh, I'd really, I play bass, I'd love to make some music with you. And he's, and on it comes, what about now? And they stayed for three days and started to make the roots of what was uh, the Shape of Jazz to Come album. And it is, it still sounds ferocious and amazing does, now. I know. He wanted to kind of speak through the instrument, didn't he? It, was, it had a very kind of vocal tone. That's right. He said, I'm not bothered with chords, I'm not bothered with keys, I'm not bothered with melodies, I'm just it's about sound. Yeah. I just want to make some sound on this instrument. I mean, he's technically a brilliant player. Yeah, absolutely. But he, he, was going, he was taking jazz in a completely different way. So people started to hear about this guy, Ornette Coleman and his band and what they're playing. And he makes his debut in New York at a place called the Five Spot Club in 59. For what it seems to me, it's a bit like the famous Pistols at the, you know, except the Pistols gig at the Free, Free, Trade, Free Trade Hall in 76 wasn't particularly divisive, was it? There was a handful of people there and they all went off to form bands. They all thought it was amazing. I think this thing at the Five Spot that Ornette Coleman did, this brief gig, this residency, I think maybe only been a couple of nights, but the people who were there said... It was totally divided. There were people queuing around the block and then people were, it's like Rite of Spring, you know, style thing. Some people said, this isn't music, what is he doing? Other people were entranced by it, but apparently it was an incredible thing. And The Shape of Jazz to Come sounds like an audacious title for this guy's record. But in a way... Sometimes you've got to arrive with a band, don't you? And and a statement of intent. But he, And he was right, because of all these four, on all these four records, in a way, are the shape of jazz to come in different ways. Miles is the birth of cool jazz, and I guess... Dave Brubeck is the birth of like coffee table jazz, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the Charlie Mingus comes the more politically engaged jazz that we'll see, sort of spiritual and political jazz during the 1960s. And out of Arnett Coleman comes free, free jazz, jazz, which became, which still divides people today about whether it's jazz or not. I mean, I love it, but it's not for everyone. So the shape of jazz to come, it's not that audacious and kind of all those records from that amazing year, 1959. 
in some ways we're setting the shepherd jazz to come. Some people would say about 1959, though, as well, that in many ways it's not a great year for jazz because having been, in some ways, the dominant musical form through the 50s, particularly coming out of black America, that 59 is when it splits, is when you get Miles Davis going into modal jazz and on it come and starting free jazz. And, and so in some ways, jazz never becomes a dominant force again. It becomes niche, some people say, it never, up until recently maybe, with the new generation of jazzers like Kamasi Washington and people like that. You could say that recently it, that it diluted the appeal of jazz and what in and rock. It became a bit more challenging as well than it had yeah, been. Yeah, more of an esoteric interest, yeah. I guess, a niche interest, and that rock comes along and supplants it as the main popular music of the day. So it did change jazz, but I guess there'll be some people who say maybe not completely for the better. You can tell us what you think about all this. You may be a very keen jazz fan who thinks 1959 is the year that ruined jazz. You may think kind of blues overrated. You may think free jazz is A, brilliant, B, unlistenable. Show your thoughts with us about any of these things. We have a Twitter account, at NotablePod. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and do you think that Paul McCartney's dead or alive? Paul, if you're listening yeah. and you'd like to come <laughs> on the Notable Pod, bring some chocolate peanuts. Again, they were delicious. And uh, <laughs> we, can, we can nail this rumour once and for all. He's on Twitter, Paul. Is so he? he can find us at NotablePod. Then you can find us wherever good podcasts blossom. <laughs> <laughs> We're called Notable we're Google for us. Yeah, we're blossoming somewhere on a platform near you soon. Like, subscribe, all that good stuff. All that jazz. Oh, that oh yes. all that jazz. <laughs> Just leave that in, Jeff. <laughs> Notable, the podcast. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.